Welcome to our podcast series, Talking with Traders, hosted by expert trader Garth McKenzie in London, from where he's interviewing various guests on the topic of trading. Welcome back to season seven of Talking with Traders. We're now into the fourth year of this podcast since it started in early 2020. Once again, IG have come on board as our sponsor for this season. We are truly privileged and grateful to have such a global leader in CFD trading as our sponsor. Over the coming weeks, I'll be interviewing various guests from around the globe on the topic of trading. Some will be follow-ups with past guests and some will be new guests. The idea behind this podcast is that you get a variety of views from a broad spectrum of market professionals. None of what you hear in these episodes is intended to be financial advice, but it is intended to get you thinking about how you might be able to apply what you hear here into your own trading and investing. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcast app. That way you'll be notified when new episodes are released. Once again, thank you to IG for funding and sponsoring this podcast into its fourth year. And thank you listeners for tuning in. Please enjoy season seven of Talking with Traders. This week's guest on Talking with Traders is Willie Delwich from High Mount Research in Milwaukee in the USA. I've really been looking forward to chatting to you, Willie. Uh, I know in the email correspondence that we had before this podcast, you said you don't really consider yourself a trader. So I must just make that clear to the listeners right up front. Um, but that's also fine. We don't only talk to traders on this podcast. We talk to investors. We talk to you know anything that's interesting to the general trading and investing community. So welcome to Talking With Traders first up and uh, looking forward to the chat can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your background, please, Willie? Sure, sure, Garth. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for inviting me. Um, and and yeah, I am I am definitely not a trader. Um, not never never been accused of that. I look at the market all the time, and I I mean that's been my my professional career. I uh, graduated from college, undergrad in '99. Um, started working at a a local uh, Milwaukee firm. Uh, in November of 99. So I got to see the, the final run up of the, the NASDAQ uh, tech bubble. Yeah. And then in the first, I don't know, seven years of my career, I saw uh, the S&P 500 get cut in half twice and, and then double twice. And so um, really a, a rather dramatic introduction to um, what, what's now been a career of looking at the market, trying to trying to help mostly financial advisors um, make sense of what's news and what's noise and what to do about it from an asset allocation perspective and from a kind of a tactical risk exposure perspective. Okay, cool. And you've got a CFA and a CMT, right? Yes, I do. Um, so I <laughs> I had to, so I was working at the firm I was working at the time. Um, the typical path was to get your CFA right after you started as a junior analyst. Um, the CMT Still not as widely known as, as a CFA was even less widely known then, particularly in, in an area like Milwaukee. Um, and so after successfully doing the CFA, then I had the the ability um, and the freedom to go and pursue the CMT. Yeah. And it's quite interesting to have both because, I mean, I know historically there's been sort of this uh, – you sit in one of two camps, either you're a fundamental guy or you're a technical guy and, you know, never, never the two shall cross, but that's, that's <laughs> kind of from, from the old age. Um, it's becoming more and more common, certainly in my career, which I guess spans about the same length as your career. Um, we're starting to see technicals come in and to be more and more 
appreciated and respected, I suppose. Um, and I've not I've not come across a lot of people that have both the the CFA uh, as well as the the CMT, the Chartered Market Technician. But for you to have both of them, that's pretty good. They're both very high, widely respected qualifications. Yeah, I, I think it's I like it because it you know CM you know te- technicals get a bad rap from fundamental analysts. Um, you know, technicians like to get on, on fundamental analysts as well. It, you know, it's, but there are benefits from both. And so finding that middle ground, um, and, and acknowledging kind of that balance of what should happen versus what could happen and verse and what it is happening. I think that's really from a risk management perspective. Um, it's about keeping your opportunities open and, you know, gleaning what you can from one discipline, gleaning what you can from another discipline and not being so close minded and hostage, uh, you know, hostile to other people's ideas that you can't see where there's something good there. Yeah, 100 percent. No, completely agree with that. So as mentioned, you said you don't consider yourself a trader and you look more to broader, broader picture, bigger picture view of the markets. Um, I saw on your Twitter, or I don't know, we, do we call it Twitter these days? <laughs> I think it's it's X. Yeah, you, so you saw you, an X I posted. You 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 posted on X. Um, <laughs> we still like to call it a tweet, I guess. You posted a tweet. Yeah. I mean, that's just like a verb. I'm surprised that they've done away with the the brand. In any case, let's not get distracted. But the tweet that you posted was was great. It said, "Over explaining every day to day swing in the market produces a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing." Don't forget to zoom out for perspective. Now, I really liked that. I thought that it captured it really, really, really well because quite quite right, you know, I find it with my own trading. If you get too close to the screens, you sit too close to the market, you kind of lose perspective. It's like you can't see the wood for the trees. Um, so I guess you and I are, are, are similar in that respect. Um, I've actually often found I tend to produce better results when I'm actually not quite so obsessed with the screens. I don't know if that's been your experience as well then. Oh, for well, th- there's two sides to that. One, stepping away uh, from our screens, and, I, and it's super easy to be chained to them much more than we need to be. Um, thinking that we we can only think if we're actually looking at something. I think you know, get out, go for a walk, uh, go spend some time in the garden, whatever it is that you like to do as a hobby. I think that helps kind of facilitate some thinking related to the market. the The other point, though, is um, you know that 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 quote from from Shakespeare is that we get so wrapped up in the stories that we're telling um, that they become meaningless. And the more we spend um, time polishing that story and focusing just on that story, the more we close our minds to other things that might be happening. So it's really this idea that if we're going to keep perspective, it, it means not listening to ourselves, but, but getting out in the world and listening to the market and being open to new ideas as they come along. Mm, yeah, absolutely. All right, so I want to chat to you a bit about where we are currently in the markets at this point in time. Um, I know with with a lot of these podcasts, we do try and keep the content somewhat evergreen. And on this, we'll talk about a little bit of evergreen stuff as well. But it's also useful sometimes to, when, when I have the opportunity to talk to somebody like yourself, who I really respect and who's, whose analysis I really respect, it's, it's quite um, appealing to get a bit of a current market view. So, you know, from... from from my perspective, and I guess I've seen it in some of your work as, as well. I mean, it, it seems, it feels like we're in a tricky, very tricky stage of the markets right now. We've got possibly a peak in interest rates. 
we've got inverted yield, very inverted yield curve, which is starting to you know steepen. Um, and historically, that's been a precursor to recession. So there's a possibility of recession coming maybe next year sometime. Um, consumer savings look like they've been depleted from a lot of metrics that I follow. You know, so what is your perspective on where we are in the market now? I, I've gotten the feeling that you're a little bit more cautious than a lot of other guys out there in the market who've been calling for a year-end rally and it's bullish, bullish, bullish. Um, I, I kind of get the sense that you've been tempering that, but I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth. So <laughs> tell us from your perspective how you are viewing the market at this point in time if you're looking at it on a, I don't know, 12 to 18-month view. Yeah, so I think when we do zoom out from the day-to-day -day of, of what's happening, uh, a, a couple things stand out to me. One, we, you know, it starts with the interest rates. Um, we we have a a generation of investors who know only the pattern of lower highs and lower lows when it comes to interest rates, and now that's been broken. Um, so we need to acknowledge that that interest rate regime, whether it's a whether we're heading towards a short term peak or not. Um, something has changed with respect to the interest rate re regime versus what we saw over the past 10 years, past 20 years, past 50 years. Um, so, so we need to acknowledge that. And, and I, I, I think not focus on the fact that could, could we get a peak in yields? Maybe, but we're in a different trend environment, a different regime environment for yields. That's not just a one or two year type environment. This is probably something that's going to persist um, yields were picking up a little bit prior to COVID. Inflation was accelerating prior to COVID. And so then that brings us to, um, you know, so we have this higher interest rate environment. Then what does that mean for stocks? And um, you look at how investors are positioned, um, not positioned for a year in rally, but positioned from an asset allocation perspective. And you have way more exposure to equities um, than you, you historically have. So uh, equity exposure is super high. Fixed income exposure is historically low. Um, I think there's an opportunity to rebalance that probably not not this year, but over the next two, five, 10 years. I think that's the bigger picture that we need to focus on, that shift in interest rates and the, and the possibility that we're in one of these environments that we have seen in the past where stocks are volatile, but after at the end of a decade, they're no higher than they were 10 years ago. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, I've I've seen a lot of other very respected uh, market analysts suggesting. That. I mean, I know one of them that always springs to mind is John Hussman, who's got, um, you know, he's got clever models that look out ten years and and project the market return ten years forward. And it's had a very very a remarkably accurate uh, ability to forecast the movements of the market in the past. And he's also saying that basically, look out ten years, you're not going to have made any money out of equities. You, you're going to have just had a big churn for 10 years, lots of volatility, which obviously you can probably make some money if you manage to capture the volatility and get on the right side of it. That's another question. Um, but that by the end of the 10-year period, you know, you you probably have got your dividends and that's that's maybe it. You got don't expect too much in the way of capital growth. You were also quoted uh, in, a, in a tweet recently where, was it last week or earlier this week even, um, where you reckon that bonds offer the big opportunity right now. So, I mean, I know you did allude to that a moment ago when you said that equity allocation is very high and fixed income allocation is historically low. I mean, bonds typically, treasuries typically are a safer place to hide if you believe you're going into a recessionary environment. I mean, can you just give a bit of color to that? 
Yeah, yeah. I, I think so. So we can think about the long term and think about underexposure to, to fixed income, which is, is a reality. And so there's the opportunity for investors to reallocate from stocks to bonds uh, if we get into this environment where where stocks don't move higher. Um, but we're also now, you know, over the past couple of years, we've moved from this. There is no alternative um, type of mantra because bond yields were so low. Well, now we've got across the curve you know, four and a half to five and a half percent yields in the U.S. Does, you know, is it the same sort of bond bull market that you saw in the early 80s? I don't think so. But is it a place that you kind of hide out with some relative safety? I I think probably. And so, um, you know, yeah, investors might want to clip coupons from from dividends. It might make more sense in this environment to to just clip the coupons from the bonds themselves. Um move away from the volatility of equity markets and and you accept and embrace the fact that these interest rate hikes that we've seen now do actually give investors an opportunity to do something other than just try to ride out the storm in the equity market yeah yeah i mean the the, the yields that you're able to earn on on bonds i mean let's talk, let's talk about 10-year treasuries is higher than the dividend yield on the s p 500 now isn't it yeah, yeah that's it, the- it, it is for a while, uh, we we actually saw the 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 one year the forward earnings yield on the S and P five hundred was below the uh, one year Treasury yield, and so we we've talked a, a lot through history about having an equity risk premium. For a while there, we actually had a bond risk premium, whatever that means. Yeah. Um, but it's certainly the case that you're not getting paid for the risk that you're taking in equities in the same way that you have over the past decade. And for many investors, and I, I think this is probably the the, the the pivotal point here is you have a generation of equity investors, particularly in the U.S., that think stocks go up and to the right. And when they stop doing that, it's a very short-lived pullback. They are not prepared for an environment where stocks don't go up and to the right over time, where you, you go up and then you go down, you go up and then you go down. So it's a psychological change and awareness that needs to take place on the part of U.S. investors. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. I mean, and, and you, you're quite right. I mean, we had a, an entire generation because, I mean, rates have been in a declining trend for what since 1981, um, yeah. and 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 that's largely been a tailwind to equities uh, over that time for for uh, on a bigger picture view. And I guess you know, bear markets or that that psychological shift doesn't happen overnight. It has to happen slowly. I suppose you it grinds you down. Um, and, and you know, as you say, if you if you're suddenly not seeing the higher lows and higher highs all the time, but you're actually seeing lower lows and lower highs, and slowly but surely, it kind of wears down the investor's confidence. But it takes time for that mind shift to change. Yeah, yeah, I think I think so. And I think about consumer se- or investor sentiment, and we think about this move from from optimism to pessimism. Um, we need to remember that that optimism and pessimism are very similar. The opposite of optimism isn't pessimism. The opposite of optimism is apathy. And so when investors become apathetic about equities and they sell them regardless of what they're doing, when they reallocate away from equity exposure, that's when you know you're starting to make some progress in terms of this uh, secular cycle that, that I'm talking about. We haven't seen that. Ex- equity exposure remains elevated. Um, the AAI asset allocation survey uh, every month has, you know, talk about pessimism being rampant over the past year in this bear market in the U.S. 
equity exposure is still above average. And so investors have not abandoned equities. Um, it's still, yeah, you oscillate from optim optimism to pessimism, but that's still the game that, that's being played. Once we move to apathy and start to actually rotate away, then I start. I think we can start to talk about some sort of secular progress. Yeah, yeah, no, that's fair enough. I want to talk to you about market breadth as well, because that's also something that I've seen you uh, alluding to a lot in or in your analysis. Um, basically, saying that you know, the the number of stocks below their two hundred day moving average, for example, is still in the majority on the S and P five hundred. There's, I think, when I when I look today, there's only. I think 39% of stocks are above their 200-day moving average. Um, obviously, this changes over time. But, I mean, it's saying that more than half the stocks are still below their 200-day moving average, notwithstanding the fact that the S&P 500 itself is actually back above the 200-day moving average now. Um, you also look at things like collective new lows and new highs. So, I mean, the, the breadth in the market, I guess, is not supportive of um, a bull market, would you say? Uh, very much so. So there's two ways to think about breadth right now. One way is to say uh, breadth doesn't matter because the S&P 500's, you know, waiting towards the top seven, eight, 10 stocks, whatever is at or near its highest levels. And so, you know, at, so as, as far as those index go, those, those stocks go, that's where the index is going to go. And um, so you could minimize the breadth argument if you wanted to. Um I would take the opposite side and say breadth still matters, um, but we need to measure it correctly. A lot of people will um, come up with kind of random breadth indicators to support whatever view they want to, to get to. Um, I think that's bad analysis. I think that's the type of thing that gives you know technical approaches a bad name is when you pick and choose your approach so that it fits your prior conclusion. I have for a long time looked at net new highs. So new highs minus new lows um, on the NYSE and plus NASDAQ, 52 week, you know, 52 week new highs versus 52 week new lows. And as far as I can tell, it doesn't matter whether they've peaked or not. You know, net new highs have peaked or net new lows have peaked. What is pivotal is whether or not you are consistently getting more stocks making new lows or consistently getting more stocks making new highs. Right. Going back 30 plus years, all the net gains in the S&P 500 have come in an environment where you're seeing more stocks make net new high, new highs than new lows. And that's not what we've seen um, on any sort of consistent basis since the peak, um, actually prior to the peak in January of 2022. And okay. so that would, yeah. And even now, I mean, so the market, in this this current pullback correction, call it, that we've had in, in a nearly 10% on the S&P 500, uh, it's been going on what three three and a half months or so um even at that recent peak was that also still not showing uh, you know not not showing positive breadth at that stage either at, at, for for a for the briefest of moments yes okay. um but then it quit then it quickly turned back to negative and you go back to what we saw at the end of october early november that you know that that week there with with tremendous short-term participation that yeah. um you know one of the best weeks for the s p 500 in a year i think small caps were up like seven and a half percent or something like that even in that week we had one day in which more more stocks were making new highs and new lows and at the end of that we quickly moved back to more stocks making new lows and new highs and so um is it is it a simplistic approach yes has it worked 
Yes. And so I don't want to overcomplicate things by by changing time horizons, changing the universe, um, looking for peaks, things like, no, let's just use that that dividing line. More stocks making new highs versus new lows or more stocks making new lows versus new highs. Yeah. Okay. So I, I had a chuckle at a, um, there's also, I think, a tweet that you put out earlier this week said that um, the bulls are obsessing over Zweig like the bears obsess over Hindenburg. <laughs> so just for context, um, the, the Zweig is a, the Zweig breath, breadth model um, and it yeah. gave a breadth, a breadth thrust indicator earlier this week. Uh, which we can talk about in a moment, but these things kind of come around quite infrequently. And obviously all the bullish commentators are jumping on this and saying, well, this is now the signal that you, you know, we're going to get this year end rally. And then of the, on the other hand, the Hindenburg omen is, uh, is, is also one of these things. I mean, I also chuckle at it. The Hindenburg omen is, is a bearish indicator and uh, the Hindenburg omen has, what's it? It's forecast about, 247 of the last three bear markets so <laughs> so i guess one's got to got to take these things with a pinch of salt sometimes but i mean that's like um breadth thrust indicator that did not pay, place much reliance on that then at the moment you know so so there's a couple i i have over the course of my career i have i have liked to use breadth thrust indicators as indicate as a signal of breadth um they have tended to be rare and they have tended to be important um, I have not used the Zweig breadth thrust indicator in over the course of my career. So that's, that's not one that I've looked at, Okay, but, but more broadly with breadth thrust indicators, they've become more frequent. And so if you have a, a signal that is notable for its infrequency, and then all of a sudden starts to become more frequent, then, then it suggests that something in the market dynamics may have changed. Um, and so, so bro just stepping away from Zweig and lo even looking at the breadth thrust indicators that I have used in the past, I'm de-emphasizing them right now because they, we've gotten more and more signals and they haven't been, from my perspective, as reliable as they were when they were relatively rare. Okay. Can you just explain in basic terms how that breadth thrust indicator works? One of the ones that you would look at in your work. Yeah. So like one that I will use is I'll, I'll look at, it's a short-term one, the percentage of S&P 500 stocks making new 20-day highs. Um, right. I think uh, uh, Jeff DeGraff um, uh, now at, at uh, Renaissance Macro, I, he originally created it. I saw a version of it uh, through through Ned Davis Research. So it's it looks at, you You see a surge in, in the, the percentage of stocks making 20-day new highs. I think the signal is 55, if you get above 55%, then that's a thrust. The idea behind a breadth thrust is that you've you've kind of gotten really sold out. Everything's been really bad, and and on a dime you've pivoted. Everything's moving together all at once, moving higher, and that tends to produce momentum that persists. Okay. Um, and and so that's that's the idea. And then you you can look at it over three, six, twelve months, and and you can see these above average periods of return um, when they're rare. They they've been useful things to identify. The problem is they become less rare, and there's a lot of different breadth thrust indicators now. I and mean, everyone has their own version of something mm. um, that they've developed. And so I just I I think the waters there have become muddied um, and probably not as useful as they used to be. Okay. All right. Interesting perspective there. All right. When it comes to managing risk, um, I mean. You, you know, you've said you're not a trader. You're a, you're more of an investor. So I, I I get that. But 
managing risk is still very important, irrespective of what approach you're you're taking, whether you be a short term trader or a, or a more longer term investor. Do you have any specific rules or methodologies that you that use to manage risk, which are yeah, unique to you? Or I mean, there's obviously some fairly generic ones out there, but is there anything specific that you look at? Well, I mean, I try to develop models that that tell me broadly whether or not the risk is to the upside or risk is to the downside. Um, you know, one of them is, you know, I have a short term, I, I call it a fear of strength model. Um, we've talked about the strength component of it already um, in terms of net new highs. If so, if we if we're seeing net new highs, then we're seeing strength in the market. And so we need we can be long. Um, the other, the fear side of it is if we get a spike in, in the VIX and spike in volatility, then that also provides us a signal for being long. Um, if we have neither fear nor strength, it doesn't make sense to, from a tactical perspective, to be in the market. Um, and so, so that's one of the, the kind of tactical models that I rely on for, for, for risk control, um, from a more cyclical perspective. Over time, I've developed a way to the evidence model where I looked at look at some macro indicators and then some technical indicators. And if if the if it's tilted towards opportunity, then it makes sense to be a little longer. If it, if, if we're tilted towards risk, it makes sense to be a little bit shorter, or or rather, not necessarily shorter, but less exposed to equities. So, um, you know, a lot of the times we think, and this is, this is the non trader in me probably coming out, that we need to be either long or short. My focus is has generally been be long or step to the sidelines and wait for oppor- better opportunities to to emerge. So it's not necessarily long or short, rather long or sitting cash. Okay, yeah, and I think that's important. A lot of people forget the fact that cash is a position, and yes, it's a, it's a nice position to be in when the markets are falling, and you've then you know kind of got a clearer head as well to put the money to work when the time is perhaps better. If you were to to I mean, let's just say for example I came to you right now and I said you know blank slate I've got to I've got hundred thousand dollars to invest um, what and I don't know if this is a fair question to ask you because I'm I'm putting you on the spot a bit here but I mean how would you how would you allocate that from a weightings perspective equities versus bonds versus cash versus maybe I don't know commodities current I don't know what else would you do is that a fair question to ask I know I'm putting you on the spot. Yeah, I mean, the I, com, coming from an environment where I, I I I dealt a lot with financial advisors who dealt with you know retail clients, you know the the first thing to ask is well well what is your base allocation, mm-hmm. um, and so not knowing that it's hard to know you know exactly what buckets to 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 align to. I would say from a from a longer term perspective, whatever your starting point is for equities, you probably underweighted. Um, whatever your your starting point is for commodities, you probably overweighted. Um, and and so there's a there's a couple ways to to answer this, and, and which is to to not actually answer your question, but to provide context for the reason why I won't answer the question. Yeah. Um. One one I think we we get stuck in a stocks versus bonds conversation. Uh, way too often. When I when I first was starting out, probably early in your career, you know, commodities were a viable asset class. It was yeah. talked about as being part of that asset allocation mix. Well, what happened over, you know, twenty years is commodities consistently underperformed to the point that they stopped getting talked about. And so, the first part of the asset allocation discussion is making sure everybody ha- 
every every you know every asset class that you need to be considering has a seat at the table. You can decide not to your exposure, but you can't add something that you're not even thinking about. So so I would I would generally think about okay, let's think about stocks, think about bonds, think about cash, think about commodities. And in this environment, it's probably being light on light on stocks, light on longer term bonds. Okay, so I, I guess I guess I would say that that we want to make sure that we are thinking about the right asset classes and making sure they have a seat at the table, and then we can decide how we're going to allocate them. So for, first, it's give stocks a seat at the table, give bonds a seat at the table, give commodities a seat at the table, give cash a seat at the table. Now, once we're there. I'd probably take a little away from equities, a little away from longer term bonds, again, whatever the starting allocation is. And right now, give a little bit more to cash, give a little bit more to commodities with the idea that probably at some point in the not too distant future, we're probably going to be shifting from slightly shorter term bonds to probably slightly longer term bonds. Right. Okay. All right. Excellent. That's great context. That's great. I, I always like to kind of end these podcasts off with a little bit of a lighter heart note to get to know the guests slightly outside of the the, the hard stuff of markets. And I, I note that uh, you're an urban farmer in your bio, which I found very interesting. It's something I've had sporadic interest in over the years. But uh, tell me about that. Yeah. So, I mean, it's something I do with my wife. We have a, you know, we live in the city, we live in, in Milwaukee proper. So we're, we've got a, a city lot, but and we've slowly, as, as the kids have gotten a little bit older, taken more and more of the backyard a, away from lawn, away from a swing set and more into raised beds, more into gardens. So, um, you know, all summer long, we're, you know, we've, we've shortened our supply chain for vegetables to, to our backyard. <laughs> Um, we, add, you know, so it's been great. Do a lot of canning, a lot of pickling, um, add in some fruit production. We've got some grapevines, we've got, uh, some cherries and some, some pears and some apples. And so really this, this just something that grows is, is super enriching for the soul. I think, yeah. um, especially given that, you know, we've got jobs where we spend a lot of time looking at, at computer screens, looking at, you know, blips up and blips down it's it's nice to kind of get our hands dirty and and actually see something that you can that grows and then you, you can eat it as a side benefit as well yeah i love it i mean, I, I love seeing on your twitter feed or your your x feed the um the produce that you pop up on there from time to time it's very <laughs> enriching and i like it as you say you know we we do have jobs that are you know lead us to be in front of a screen a lot of the time it's actually nice to do something wholesome and it's also a bit physical get out and about um so i mean as i say i've had a, a sporadic interest in it over the years as well um i lived in south africa for many years and moved to the uk four years ago so when we lived in south africa we had a big property and we had a vegetable garden there um it's a little more difficult in the uk now with our small little properties but um you have kind of inspired me to actually go and get an allotment because there is an allotment area out the back here not far from us which uh and i think there might even be some free ones probably a good way to get away from the screens and actually do something wholesome. Yeah. You know, and I would say a lot, for a lot of people, it seems daunting to, to think, okay, okay, well, I need to all these raised beds. I need to have a full plot, like start with a container, like greens yeah. are super easy to grow in, in a container. Start with some herbs, start with some basil, start with some thyme. Yeah. Um, something that, yeah, you can grow those inside. So yeah. it's, 
and, and so think about container gardening and whatever spot you've got, find a nice, you know, South facing brick wall. I hear they have some of those in Britain and, yeah. and just like, let them grow and, and see what happens. And, um, yeah, it's, it's just, it's fun for me. You know, that yeah. last winter, we actually tried to keep stuff going all winter long, um, became kind of onerous uh, <laughs> in the <laughs> snows in Milwaukee to have stuff growing outside. Um, so we're going to shut it down in the winter and then start again in the, in the, in the spring, but, you know, extending the growing season, you know, bringing some stuff inside. It's just, it's, it, 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 it for me is a very soul satisfying um, pursuit at a time when you know, the world or the market or the economy isn't always a, as perhaps soul satisfying as we'd like it to be. Yeah. hundred percent. Brilliant. Well, I love it. I love it. Well, really, it's, it's been a pleasure chatting to you. Thanks for your time. I, I just want to ask you one last thing. I mean, where can viewers and listeners to this podcast access your work? Obviously, your, your firm is High Mount Research, uh, but where's the best place for them to get in touch with you? Yeah, so so a couple of ways. You, um, on, on Twitter or X, at uh, Willie Delwich, um, you can also go to highmountresearch.com, H-I-M-O-U-N-T research.com, and you can fill out like an info, um, like want more info, uh, form there and to reach out i'm on substack so highmountresearch.substack.com as well um or check me out on linkedin i, I, I think yeah. people still connect on linkedin so yep. um yeah any, any any of those areas are, are, are great ways to to get a hold of me or if you if someone happens to be in milwaukee um you know invite me out for coffee invite me out for a beer i'm open to that as well yeah well if i'm ever there i'll definitely take you up on that that's <laughs> <laughs> good well, thanks, Willie. I really appreciate your time. It's been great speaking to you. I've looked forward to this very much, and it's great to get your insights. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It was a great conversation. Cool. Thanks, man. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Talking With Traders, brought to you by IG, a world-leading CFD provider. We really are privileged to have such a leader in the field of online trading involved in this series. Please follow us on Facebook and engage with us there. And a reminder to make sure you subscribe to this series by clicking on the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd also appreciate if you'd leave a review on the app too. Till next time.